Today's passage of scripture, as you can see behind me in the screen, can be found in Galatians chapter 5. We're going to start at the very beginning, verse 1 to verses 15. Um, So obviously you can see the passage uh, behind me in the screen, or if you're using um, one of our church Bibles, it can be found in page 1171 to start with, and that it ends on the next page on 1172. So I'm going to start reading. So it's titled Freedom in Christ. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is required to obey the whole law. You're trying to be justified by the law, have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace, for through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I'm confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you'll be destroyed by each other. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jeff. Good morning, everyone. And um, just as I'm making my way over with this, I just want to encourage you that obviously there are quite a lot of folk, particularly older folk, who are not coming along to church uh, today or perhaps last week because of the concerns that they have. Can I just encourage you just to keep your eyes around and see who those people might be? And if you have a friendship or you know them reasonably, why not give them a call and just see how they're they're doing? I think that could make all the difference uh, for some people feeling worried and very nervous in their homes. So do bear that in mind. But a question I want to ask you now, uh, looking at this topic, is this. Is a passage on circumcision really relevant in the 21st century today? What do you think? A little bit of mumbling, perhaps some relevance. But anyway, that's the one I've chosen. Whether that will become obvious why I've done it, that we'll see. Um, but circumcision uh, is clearly not that relevant, especially uh, for a Gentile church. However, though, what you might have been thinking is, is this the rudest joke in the New Testament? (laughs) 
if you think about it, it is, and I have to say uh, that the presenting issue clearly is circumcision. I doubt there's one person in the room who's uh, from a Jewish background and has been circumcised. But actually, even though it's a procedure that I am glad I've never considered having, and I definitely take over emasculation, actually the principle underlying circumcision is so important. It's about being distinctive. It's about being the people of God. It's about knowing we're family. And it's about knowing who our commitment is to. So bear that in mind as we broaden the application from circumcision uh, to other aspects of holiness. It really, really is relevant for us. And the title, as you've probably heard, is The Freedom of Holiness. And I've divided that up into three sections. The freedom of grace, the freedom of obedience, and then how can we live it out. But I want to pray now, just before we properly get underway, that God would speak to us through it. So, Father God, I bring to you this passage. I bring to you the themes that are contained within that title, freedom and holiness. Lord, we come before you with our failings, but also with our hopes. We come before you with our possibilities. We come before you with our community. We come before you with our fears, and we come before you with our confidence. And Lord, I pray through this sermon, through the prayers for healing time that comes afterwards, you would do business with us all. Whatever you want to say to us, encourage us with, challenge us with, or see us ministered to, would you make those things happen today? In your precious name we pray. Amen. Okay, so... What is freedom then according to this passage? And it's something, I think, very different to what our secular society would assume it to be. Indeed, it's very different from what a Muslim or a a Jewish society would think it to be too. And it's something Paul so desperately wants us to understand that he goes straight for the spiritual jugular, beginning with the strongest of warnings. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. And then in verse 2, he continues, Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. He's not mincing his words, is he? And then, uh, in verse 4, he drives it all home, saying, you who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. And so the strength of his language matches the shocking language of his joke. Why does he say it? Because he knows how important the issue is. Because the underlying issue behind all of this is the basis of our salvation. The centerpiece of Christian theology and the driver of the Reformation too. That salvation is by faith alone. Salvation is by faith alone alone. For it's not what we've done for God that matters, it's what he has done for us. And Paul knows, and I think we know, just how countercultural that actually is. For all our lives, we pick up the message from the world around us, don't we? That the way to get right with God is to live a good life and earn our way to heaven. That's the theology of works. That's what much of, I don't know, you might call it civic religion in the UK probably believes. Or that heaven is in fact what we have now. That it's not pie in the sky 
when we die. It's rather living a life of sex, rock and roll, drugs, and whatever the first century equivalent might have been. Where are we? What do we think? Then there's a theology of rebellion. We just heard about that. It's a theology that thinks, actually, it's all about doing exactly what we want. Expressing ourselves, exerting our independence, our freedom. Is that what our society thinks? But Paul's theology here couldn't be more different. As he concludes, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Okay, so it's radical teaching, but it can still be found in the Old Testament as well. For example, Jeremiah 31, where God tells us, I will put my law in their hearts and in their minds and write it on their hearts. And it looks ahead to a future age, post-Jesus' ministry and after the miracle of Pentecost, when Paul could, after which Paul could say this in Romans 2, a person is not a Jew who, if only one outwardly, or no, is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit and not by the written code. So that's where we're at. As Gentiles, there's no need to be circumcised. And I'm very relieved about that. We don't need that outward sound of salvation. Not that circumcision would presumably be that visible anyway, normally. But that's where the circumcision of our hearts really does show. That's when people can see God in us. Because it's the transformation of a sinner's heart that produces a a radiance in our minds and a joy in our faces. Okay, so there's nothing we can do to make ourselves right with God. We've understood that. All that was required of us was to receive the greatest gift that any of us have ever been given. The gift of Jesus dying in our place on the cross and then putting our trust in him. So that's the freedom of grace, which really is so extraordinary. No one could have made it up. And yet it's how God, in his wisdom and grace, chose to set us all free. And not just us, but every single man, woman or child who at any time since has put their faith in Jesus. Let's thank God for it. Let's celebrate it. And let's thank God that we have the greatest news and the greatest gift the world has ever seen. So that's our first section, the freedom of grace. Now I want to move on to our second, the freedom of obedience, which Paul tells us is the only logical response to the gift and the grace of salvation we've so wondrously received. But before we unpack that, I want to just unpack why this message of freedom is so powerful to the younger generations today. On my sabbatical, I think I've shared before, I did quite a a lot of reading about cultural changes and the impact that has on how we present the gospel today. And I found it very interesting, to be honest. And I looked from the post-war period upwards, starting then with uh, the generation uh, brought up in the 30s and 40s. So what that generation, many of whom are still alive today, what they tend to feel their need of is sin. Not the need to sin, but the need of forgiveness for their sin. They knew from Sunday school and all the other cultural uh, ways in which it was reflected, they knew that they were sinners and they knew they needed to be forgiven. And so the old ways of presenting the gospel worked pretty well 
for people like Billy Graham in those mass rallies and huge numbers of people coming to faith. And the spirituality in general in this time of conventional attitudes and culture was probably one of gently keeping the rules. That was that generation, the one that is uh, quite old now. Then we've got the baby boomers, and I think we've got a lot more of those here today. I don't know if you consider yourself to be a baby boomer. I think anyone whose formative years in the 60s and the 70s can be called one. And as in wider society, that brought a lot of change, with a spirituality reflecting the anti-legalism and the anti-traditionalism that was the spirit of the age. It was an amazing decade, wasn't it, the 60s? I've always been so interested in it, so fascinated by it, and in some ways, wishing I was there. But it had a big impact, of course, on our society and indeed on how the Christian faith is presented. So what difference did it make? Well, it was a freedom and experimentation that were key principles in that time with an attitude to history that was to get a fresh start, wanting to start new things. And within the evangelical church, at least, uh, all of this Uh, the new experiences people were having, was reflected in that time of the church as well. We had the charismatic movement, the first wave of it, if you've experienced that. We had the growth of house churches, spring harvest, new wine, greenbelt, and experiential faith. And so the apologetic style in the 60s and 70s needed to change. It was Christianity as a meaning giver, experiential Christianity, about having a personal faith. And evangelism in that time uh, was through seeker services, through early evangelism courses like Alpha, and it was through a culturally sensitive church, which in the US at least was a spirituality often of prosperity and success. And it was still what we'd call an essentially modern worldview, as the sociologists would put it in the cultural sense, even if rebellion was very much the spirit of the age. So what comes next? Well, we go to Generation X and early Generation Y, which is my age group. It's the first generation to get the label postmodern because it was about deconstruction and reconstruction of the central tenets of faith. A very questioning age where people reveled in trying to think through rebuilding what they believe and think it through anew. And Christianity came to be seen in some circles at least, as a community of faith. There were a lot more of a desire for small communities, small missional churches, and the presentation style changed again. For in the era, in the age of the internet, of course, they wanted to be interactive and they wanted to be online. And in this movement as well, there was a move back into the cities, the huge number of churches being planted into London and the other cities of the UK reflect that. That if the cities came to God, or so with the rest of the country. And it was a place where there was a keen sense of the priesthood of all believers. We all have a job to pray, and we're all ministers. Evangelism then came to be seen as a process of many steps. It wasn't just a one-hit wonder. There were all these stepping stones that people needed to go through as the distance culturally from biblical knowledge and our common understanding in wider society required so many more steps to come. And the attitude towards history, interestingly, in this generation X and nine, was actually quite different to their parents. They were actually happier drawing from the wisdom of their past than their baby boomer parents had been. 
I don't know if that's true in your family, but I think it probably is in mine. So then we come to millennials, the last generation I want to talk about, the, the youngest of those and as adults today. They came to age, of course, around the year 2000, and their spiritual emphases, as with wider society, were different again. The desire for authenticity. That's such an important thing for that generation. And I just want you to hold that in your minds. Living authentically with integrity. A massive, massive thing. And reflecting that, millennials are much more likely to embrace clean living, going vegan, and coping, sadly, with being the first generation, in living memory at least, to be poorer than their parents. Their politics lean left in the 20s and 30s, or center in the 30s and 40s, with worship styles probably closer to secular pop than the Christian church in the UK has ever known before. And what are the opportunities this generation has given us? Well, the desire for freedom follows the pattern their parents in the church uh, gave them, with the emphasis on authenticity actually allowing that freedom to demonstrate something so precious. Because a possibility emerged with this emphasis on authenticity, that if the church can be radical in its teaching and in its practice about community, about sharing resources, about giving generously, in seeking the best, inter- the best interests of the environment and the poor, well, then the church could come to be seen as the standard bearers of mercy and justice, of love and compassion in a wider society that with the use of social media and populism is anything but. But to take this opportunity, what do Christians need to do and be? Well, I think it's about openness and it's about holiness. The openness of being honest about our failings, our failures, while with transparency, pursuing holiness in every area of our lives. If we're open about the light inside us, and if we want to share both our failings and our passions, well, this generation, the millennials, will want to know. They really will. And it's something that we can do ourselves. So it's about the maturity of doing everything we can to grow spiritually, with the humility of knowing it's only through prayer and dependence on God that that growth will actually come. And so it's here that I want to talk about the freedom of obedience, which a wholehearted, spirit-filled Christian can enjoy. And I want to explain this now through one of the most famous parables that Jesus ever told. You'll probably all know it, the parable of the prodigal son, or perhaps as we should more accurately call it, the parable of the two sons. And the power of the parable actually, is that it points out to us how in our culture and in the Galatians culture and indeed most other cultures that have ever been, that actually there are two very wrong responses to the God's love and God's power. One is by being very, very bad, running away from it, and the other is by being very, very good. For of course, in that parable, the father is God, but the two sons represent two wrong responses to him that we can so easily slip into. Many of the things outside the church are represented by the younger son, or many of those outside the church. These are the people seeking excitement, wealth, new experiences or fulfillment from freedom away from the father and freedom away from the places they knew well. It's a powerful response, one that many still 
pursue today. But for many of us inside the church, which is most of us, the danger is becoming like the older son, living or with or alongside our father, but neither enjoying his grace or his love or caring about his priorities at all, where we're working hard to earn what we claim is legally ours in our sense of entitlement, whilst not loving and not seeking out our spiritually lost brothers and sisters who our loving Father so desperately wants to bring home. So it's by enjoying our Father's love and his blessing that we can actually be like a son that doesn't appear there at all. The good son, the one true son that Tim Keller described as Jesus himself, who was not the one that rent off, he was not the one that sulked at home. He was the true elder brother who went off to find his brother and brought him home. So, what can we draw from all of this? Well, I think we need to say that by enjoying the Father's love and by enjoying the Father's blessing, that is the life we've all been called to live. And as Jesus taught on another occasion, not this time in a parable, but through direct and liberating commands to tell us this. What does he say? If you do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. So what is the freedom of grace and obedience that can transform all our lives? Well, at the beginning, it's freedom from that anxiety about the biggest question we all face. Where do we stand with our Heavenly Father? And will we put our trust in Him? And then as time goes on, as we grow closer to God, we discover the wonder of living in an intimate and loving relationship with Him, following His teaching and enjoying the peace and purpose it brings to our lives. So as the gaping, God-shaped hole in our lives is filled, and with the prospect of a future in heaven, when what God is doing in us now will one day be fully fulfilled. John's letter said that as we focus on that time when we will see Jesus as he is, well, it purifies us now. So the people God calls us to be are those who are heavenly citizens with a heavenly mindset now as well. Okay, so that's the freedom of grace, and that's the freedom of obedience, leaving one remaining section, which I want to talk about now. How do we actually make it work? And it's a question that Paul himself anticipates at the beginning of Romans 6 when he writes this. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin, and how can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So what does it tell us? That it's not just a change of mentality or allegiance that comes with our conversion that's needed. Rather, it's the finality of death which the sacrament of believer's baptism physically represents. 
So forget infant baptism for a, remote, for a moment. I think that works on a different level, in a different metaphor. But Paul's reference here is clearly to adult baptism, where a believer falls backwards down into a pool and then hopefully rises up again after that. It represents the death of our old nature by bringing a body down into a grave. And then as we put our faith in Jesus, rising to new life again, as we live in intimate relationship and obedience with him. So we make this new life work by first crucifying our old sinful nature so that the very vigil falling down into a grave um, is symbolized. But then we take on the new nature of being washed clean by the Spirit and rising to new life dependent on that Spirit as we seek to fulfill God's purposes for us as we trust and rely on him. But we're warned, I think, by this metaphor of us being crucified on the cross. I think, other than Jesus obviously being killed in that way, I wonder if the sense of its length of time it takes, three or four hours on a cross, just captures that sense that though we've been crucified, the old nature in us isn't quite dead. It can spring to life. And so the life we need to live is one of repeatedly dying to self one of repeatedly laying down our sinful desires and our fears and repeatedly seeking the joy, the peace, and the purpose of God. Okay, I've got just a little bit now just to share before we finish. And I want to tell you a little bit about my own personal life. I became a Christian at 15. I was from a Christian family, but definitely by my uh, 13, 14 sort of age, I was not living a Christian life. And it was a nice time. I enjoyed it. I had lots of friends. But the sort of person I was uh, is not the sort of person I'd want to be now. I became a Christian at 15, and my friends quickly noticed the effects. For in my early teenage years, I had a basic strategy for getting through life, which was to make fun of absolutely everyone, to make myself look good and then look stupid, And then I played different people off against each other, and I gave as much grief as I could to the teachers without seriously getting into trouble. But when this new era in my life began, my priorities started to change. I started to look out for those who were hurting, those who I had been making fun of, those who were easy targets for mockery, and I started to care for them and befriend them. I started to stop gossiping about others, and provoking division between them. I even started to work hard at my studies. And my school friends, I have to say, started referring to the new Tom as good Tommy and the old Tom as bad Tommy. And for decades afterwards, as we reminisced together those uh, amusing stories of pranks and other funny things that happened, they would always want to say, now, was that bad Tommy or good Tommy, this... Uh, this you know, point in history like, uh, like the, the life and death of Jesus that divides everything. Now, they enjoy doing that, and I can even enjoy it. But actually, it was so important that I changed in those ways. I was doing battle, doing battle with my old way, but also fighting a battle that the devil was fighting with me. And if you want to live a good life, if you want to fulfill the calling of God, you need to recognize, you need to know, and you need to protect yourself against Uh, the attacks of Satan, the evil one. That's why we need to be together. That's why we need to pray for insight as to what he might be doing. That's why we we look to protect each other. That's why we look to 
God to help us discern where we're going forward and where we're not. And that's what the devil does. He never gives up. He's still alive. It's as if he himself is tied to the cross but hasn't yet expired. So we need to listen to his lies so that we know it's lies and we need to see the sinful nature for what it is. Stop being suspicious about where these thoughts or instincts that come to us are coming from. Stop saying they're natural. They're only natural because they're natural to our old nature. The one we left behind because it was destroying us and because we now have chosen to live with a new nature that's being renewed by the Spirit every day. So, as we finish, my question to us all is this. Have you forgotten that you are in a battle? And do you realize that if we stop discerning what is of God and what is of our fallen nature and what's of the devil, we're in big trouble. For he will be at work in us, subtly eating at us, drawing them back, drawing us back into his territory. We need to have the blinkers lifted from our eyes every day. We need to watch each other's backs if we want to see the spiritual realities of the freedom of grace and holiness real in our lives. So, we've thought about that battle that we're in. We've thought about God's purposes and we've thought about the devil's purposes. We've thought of freedom, which isn't actually the freedom to ignore God, to do what's natural to us. It's the freedom of having been made by God to be people that reflect his image and serve his kingdom and allowing that ambition, that purpose, to drive us and to fill us with joy and peace every day of our lives. And this is about calling idolatry, idolatry. I used to think when I was younger that references to idolatry, especially in the Old Testament, were really about bowing down to totem poles or golden calves or anything like that. But actually, when we start to know the Bible well and listen to it being explained to us, well, then we quickly realize that idolatry is anything other than God that we look to satisfy us. So it includes these things. Fulfillment in material possession, status, power, fame, travel, football teams, even West Ham, pop groups, food, alcohol, sexual gratification. I could go on. And to be honest with you, I've struggled with all of those things. I expect you have too. So where does that take us? Well, it takes us to the glorious news that God is with us. He's given us new birth and we have died to our old nature. And the freedom of grace and the freedom of obedience is by every day turning away from the devil, turning away from our old selves and embracing the new selves, equipped with the armor of God and listening to the spirit inside us, telling us what to do so that we can go on step by step until a few months later and certainly a few years later, we are completely transformed. So I haven't preached on the second half of Galatians 5. I was tempted It's all about walking by the Spirit, living by the Spirit, and of those qualities that start to disappear in us of the evil one and those that start to rise naturally as the fruit of the Spirit inside us. But I want, as we go into prayers for healing now, you just to think about where you are at. Have a think about whether you've been coasting, whether you've not been investing in 
ongoing growth. You've been going through the motions. Have a think about the fact that actually what the Bible teaches us is that if we're not moving forward, we're going back. When you go on one of those sort of travelators the wrong way that you find at an airport or a big station, that's what it's like. If we're not moving forward, pursuing God, well, then we will always be going backwards, further and further away from the place God wants us to be. So where are you at? Do you need today to take the opportunity to be prayed for, to be healed of our sins, as well as being healed of our ailments? We have a healing God who loves us, who wants to clean us, who wants to love us, and wants to transform us. So in a moment, the prayers for healing team uh, will be available at the back, and we'll have some music here at the front. But I just want to read to you, too, a few prophetic words that were shared before the service. So this is what has been written down for me. One person says, It is finished. The victory is already won. We just need to enter into it. Is that what you need to do today? The next one, an axe coming down on chains and unlocking a key. Unlocking a door. A key, unlocking a door. Another, burdens are dropped. Fears have gone. Freedom. Another, I have set you free, but you build a cage to sit in. And then finally, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness comprehends it not. For God is a God of light. We are people of light. And we are called to be his ambassadors to the world. Amen. As the band come up now, I'm just going to pray for us 